1: Hi everybody, welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I am your host for today, JJ Mull. And I am really excited to be here today with Gavin Arnall, um, who Gavin is currently an assistant professor in the Department of Romance Language and Literature at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Um, And he is the author of Subterranean Fanon, An Underground Theory of Radical Change, out from Columbia University Press last year in 2020. Um, And he's also the translator of Emilio de Pola's Altusser, The Infinite Farewell, out from Duke University Press in 2018. And today, um, I'm really excited to have Gavin on the program to talk about um, this really fantastic book, Subterranean Phenom, um, which again came out from Columbia University Press. Um, so please do check it out, find it if you can. Um, but just sort of to get the ball rolling, you know, I think generally on the program, I tend to just, in a sort of broad strokes way, ask folks what brought them to write the book in question um you know just sort of personally biographically intellectually how did the the project come about if you were to kind of tell the story of its origins yeah
0: great thanks thanks so much for having me JJ this is a really really nice opportunity um I uh I guess I would say that there's there's there were like a lot of projects sort of many different beginnings but um I highlight two in the book that I'll that I'll I'll mention here too, um, you know one one is kind of a a kind of academic uh, beginning, and the other one's more sort of political uh, beginning. So the one the the academic story is that as a graduate student, I was um, I wanted to do justice to. Um, to the depth of Fanon's thinking, and I had heard rumors that there were these writings out there that had, had never been published before, that had been published in very obscure journals that were difficult to access, basically impossible to access. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to just get to the bottom of that. Why would it be the case that such a famous thinker would have uh, maybe significant, it was unclear at the time, but maybe significant material um, out there that had that had not been circulated, and so I did a little bit of research. Found that his um, his papers were held in this small in in, a, in an important archive in a small village in France. So I, I traveled out there, and um, and that's where I encountered for the first time, um, Fanon's medical papers, his psychiatric writings. Um, there were other writings there, but that ended up being the the bulk of the material. Um, and it was just a it was a very you know fascinating experience to read these to, to get this new view of Fanon that was that I had found out was was very underemphasized in, in the existing literature, mainly because of in access to this material. Um and uh luckily that has since been been published. So it's now out in a in a, a really big anthology titled Alienation of Freedom that that anyone can can pick up and yeah, read. it's a it's a and,
1: brick. Yeah, I've
0: I've got it on my shelf over here. But yeah, yeah. And now I guess subsequently they've divided the sections up into smaller, more manageable books. So there's going to be, I I think there's now a psychiatric writings one, a political writings one, and then a, I don't know, a theatrical plays one. Um, so you can yeah. So so that material's out, but I had the the. opportunity and the privilege to to read it before it had been circulating and and I felt a kind of scholarly urgency to to reckon with and account for this work that had been not studied seriously by just a gigantic uh, field of secondary literature. Um, So that's the the sort of uh, scholarly story and and the academic story. the political story is that um, I, was, I was actually working on a dissertation that didn't focus exclusively on Fanon, but it it just happened to be that while I was writing uh, the, the chapter on Fanon, only one chapter of the dissertation, um, uh, was right at the height of what could be described as sort of the first wave of the Black Lives Matter movement. Of course, there were, there, there was obviously much work done before uh, Black Lives Matter became the the nationwide and viral phenomenon that it was, um, and that it continues to be. Um, but, but I noticed, you know, uh, Fanon was appearing in conversations at protests. Uh, some of his statements were becoming signs at demonstrations. Uh, sometimes people would just carry his um, his portrait. Um, and that got me thinking, well, what is it about Fanon that speaks to us right now? Why is it that, you know, outside of the classroom, but in in the streets, Fanon had was was being discussed and appealed to. Um, and that uh, Uh, sent me on a a kind of um, a rethinking if I didn't mention that while I was in the archives I I felt like I really got a sense of the the tensions and divisions in Fanon's thinking but here at the at the protest I got more of a sense of how deeply important the question of change was for Fanon That that on some level what unites all the work is is a, a deep commitment to thinking about and pushing for change at every level of society. Um, and so it, it was It was that combination that in, in the archives, the sense of a kind of underlying tension in his thinking, but then at the same time, the urgency of change uh, um, that, that combined into the book, um, where I, I started realizing that you know what's really what's really at the bottom of of this division internal to Fanon's thinking, this these tensions, these these um, conflicting statements, these uh, surprising images and metaphors, these almost slips of the tongue, um, is uh, varying conceptualizations of of the nature of change and how best to pursue change. So that that's sort of um, the the background of how how I shifted from this dissertation where Fanon was a part of it to saying no there's there's a bigger argument here and a bigger story and I'm going to just focus exclusively on on Fanon for the first book and so that's
1: that's what I did. fantastic and you know Gavin, I mean I think that transitions well into what I was hoping to ask you next which I mean as you just sort of gestured towards in the project you really tease out and spend, an incredible or, or pay an incredible amount of attention to, um, what you're deeming this tension, this internal tension to Fanon. Um, and I was hoping in some ways that you would maybe paint a little bit of a portrait for listeners of what you're conceiving in the book as these kind of two strains in Fanon and the way that they kind of press up against one another. And I think in the book, you sort of you characterize it under the rubric of, I think, the the dialectical and the non-dialectical phenon. Um, The non-dialectical phenon being the the sort of quote unquote subterranean phenon of the title. Um, So maybe we could just start there of just sort of giving us a little bit of a sense of how you're conceiving of these dichotomous phenons. Yeah,
0: sure. Thank you. Yeah. So um, I think it starts with, well, I should start with a, a bit of a caveat, which is that um, both of these distinct conceptualizations of change are very complicated and refer to very complicated traditions of thinking. And so in order to you know, for the purposes of our conversation, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to kind of summarize, but I think in the book, I really try to develop uh, in depth the complexity of, of, of both of these two positions. But if I were to give some of the, the basic features of, um, on the one hand, uh, a dialectical conceptualization of change for Fanon, uh, because others Other dialecticians will conceive of dialectical change differently, but for Fanon. And then on the other hand, the non-dialectical conceptualization of change for Fanon. If we start with the dialectical conceptualization of change, on the one hand, it's an insistence on the importance of the notion of contradiction so that any given thing is, can be conceived of as a unity of opposites as composed of mutually dependent and yet antagonistic sides. Um, And so an easy example for this is colonial society. Colonial society is a very stratified society. And yet at the same time, there's some sort of basic uh, core contradiction, which is the uh, antagonism between the colonizer and the colonized. There are other positions, of course, and there are subdivisions within both of those categories. But there's a way in which these two groups compose colonial society. Colonial society isn't a simple unity; it's a divided, um, a divided whole. And the idea is that, uh, in dialectical thinking, that um, contradiction is the basis or source of change. So, in other words, it's It's the antagonistic relationship between the colonizer and the colonized that moves towards a new type of society and the overthrow of colonial society. Um, So change occurs as a result of the dynamic oppositional relationship between these two sides. And, And as I said, they're also mutually dependent in the sense that the one requires the other without the one you don't have the other in order to be a colonizer, there has to be a colonized. In order to be colonized, there has to be a colonizer. Um, So there's this mutual dependence as well as antagonism, and that's the source of change. That's where colonial society is ultimately undone and moves towards something else. Another core feature of dialectical thinking is the question of the relationship between um, the past, the present, and the future. And more specifically, how elements from the past and the present, what kind of role do they play in, the, in what we could call the new? What dialectical thinking will say, for Fanon at least, is that change is a process whereby elements from the past or the present are negated, their, their current form is, is abolished, and yet they take on a qualitatively new form an, an elevated or enhanced form, uh, and in that way are maintained and preserved. So it's, this ultimately comes from the, the German term Aufheben, which is a notoriously difficult word to, to, to interpret, but uh, that Hegel puts forward to, um, to conceive of a type of change that encapsulates at the same time, negation, preservation, and elevation, or abolition, the maintenance of that given thing but also its, its qualitatively transformed form, uh, its, its newness. So that's, that's sort of, um, that, that's what it looks like um, to conceive of change as a dialectical process. You would say something like, whether, it's, whether you're talking about European uh, enlightenment thought or Christianity, it plays a certain role in colonial society, but maybe those elements would have a future in a decolonized world but they would take on a qualitatively different form, one uh, where their colonial form would be negated, abolished. Um, the purposes that they play in colonial society would be no more, and yet they might live on and, and continue to exist. So so if that's if that's sort of the one I, I call it, you know, the dialectical phenon, sometimes the dominant phenon, because that's the phenomenon that we hear from the most. This is the this is the predominant argument throughout the even as, the argument, even as the context changes, the, the specifics change during Fanon's short but very productive life as a writer, this is kind of the, the, the main way that Fanon thinks about change. But there's this other subterranean way of thinking about change that emerges to interrupt, disrupt, problematize this sort of dominant way of thinking about change. And it presents another conceptualization of of how change occurs that I describe as non-dialectical. So if we start with the question of opposition, instead of contradictory opposition, a unity of opposites, this is an opposition without unity, uh, an encounter of, of radically different forces that their only relation is one of heterogeneity or incommensurability. So this is another way of thinking of the relationship between the colonizer and the colonized, not necessarily as the two sides of colonial society, but rather as sort of mutually exclusive forces, both leading towards the uh, complete uh, total destruction of the other side. For this way of thinking about opposition, it generates a different type of change, not the kind of change where something from the past or the present is negated yet preserved in an elevated form, but rather where there is a kind of clearing, uh, um, in a sense, a a destruction of what is, a claim that in order to truly get past colonialism, there needs to be a, a break, a rupture with what was to make way for invention, creation, discovery, and the birth of something so new that it can only be truly understood as untethered from everything that precedes it. And so this, this is this kind of other mode of thinking about, about change that I that I try to, to signal uh, and develop in the book, that again, it is not the dominant form and requires kind of a special type of, um, Uh, approach to Fanon's thinking in order to really truly appreciate it because it can be overlooked otherwise.
1: Yeah. Right. Um, Fascinating. And again, I mean, I think this is really this conception of Fanon is really at the heart of the book. And I think really you do an excellent job in the introduction of the book of situating yourself within a broader lineage of Fenonian study. So again, as you indicated earlier, you know, this is sort of a deeply complex um, set of theoretical interventions, but as kind of simply as one possibly can, how would you sort of map the some other sort of orientations to a Phenonian legacy, um, you know, I'm thinking in particular in in the introduction, you kind of, you kind of gloss a certain post-colonial um, inheritance of Fanon, also a kind of Afro-pessimist inheritance of Fanon. So maybe just, just briefly you could touch on different inheritors of this tradition, yeah.
0: What I, what I would say here is sort of that um, Fanon's dividedness divides Fanon studies, that, that, Fanon's, that readers of Fanon find themselves thrown into this tension uh, and and uh, without simplifying too much, it's true that there are, as I see it, there are sort of um, some two basic strategies uh, of dealing with this. Um, there's a whole series of scholars from, from various points of, of view, uh, you know, in, within post colonial studies, within uh, decolonial studies to some extent, uh, that try to resolve the tension. Uh, in Fanon's thinking and by uh, attempting to explain every inconsistency uh, in an attempt to present Fanon as a consistent, unified thinker. Um, this, this often takes away from the complexity of, of, of Fanon's argument. It's also often uh, not very convincing because it's so neat, and yet when, when you read through Fanon's writings, you see that, it, that the thinking is not neat in that same type of way. Um, and it also risks missing the possibility that what really matters in Fanon's writing is the tension, uh, the division. That if we could speak of a consistency in Fanon, it would be his, in his, the consistency of his inconsistency. He's consistently inconsistent when it right. comes to the nature of change. Right. Um, and that uh, any, any sort of interpretive acrobatics to, to make it seem like Fanon is a, a unified, uh, singular, consistent thinker would be to lose uh, one side or the other of this tension. That, that's, that's sort of the, a core tension throughout Fanon's entire overall. So so that's sort of one strategy of dealing with this that my book tries to to move away from. Another strategy, which is more common among, again, some figures within post-colonial studies and also um, uh, I would say most figures within uh, sort of Afro-pessimist readings of Fanon is to um, see acknowledge that the tension's there, not try to resolve it, not say, no, no, actually, Fanon was consistent all along. Uh, Say, no, there is a tension. But we, as readers, need to choose sides. Right. So it's for us. So what happens is that the tension internal to Fanon then becomes an either-or choice. We're either on the side of his dialectical thinking about change or we're on the side of his non-dialectical thinking about change. Um sometimes this it's sometimes it's true that that the non dialectical Fanon is anti dialectical. There are moments in Fanon's writings where Fanon attacks dialectical thinking. And it's also true that sometimes, from a dialectical perspective, Fanon engages in a kind of self critique where the non dialectical formulations are are critiqued as undialectical, as not sufficiently dialectical enough. So it is the case that sometimes this internal division in Fanon's thinking turns into a kind of antagonism, almost a kind of either or. But that's really only one mode of how they relate. Um, And in the book, I try to show that there are other modalities of relation between these two Fanons. they are just as often complementary as they are antagonistic. So in other words, even though at, at face value, it might appear like there's no possible way in which a dialectical way of thinking about change and a non-dialectical way of thinking about change could coexist, we we find in Fanon experimentations with uh, the theorization of a of a of a process of change where there are dialectical and non-dialectical moments, where it's not that the entire process is either one or the other, but that depending on the moment in question, dialectical thinking or non-dialectical thinking is the appropriate way to analyze what's taking place. So that gets completely lost in this this strategy of the either-or choice. Uh, and what also gets lost, I think, is that uh, more often than the contrad- than the sort of antagonistic on the one hand or the complementary, on the other hand, relationship between the two fanons, more often than not, it's it's a latent tension, uh, a kind of unresolved latent tension. Um, we see in Fanon strange silences, digressions in the argument. Uh, I, I said earlier, slips of the tongue, and it's important to note that Fanon, his method of writing was often one of dictation. He would speak aloud and someone else would write down what he was saying. Fascinating. So yeah. could that actually yeah. come up in the writing? Um, and in that case, there's this general sense of irresolution about the nature and the problem of change. And I think that invites us to ask questions about what it was that was so difficult for Fanon. uh, What were the problems that he was wrestling with that he felt didn't have easy solutions? Um, I think we missed that opportunity to think with Fanon if we rush to choose one side or the other. Uh, For Fanon, it wasn't straightforward. And I don't think it should be straightforward for us either. And so that's, that's what I—I. I, that's the 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 way of reading that I propose in the book to to avoid this kind of, either on the one hand, denying that any division exists, uh, performing in, interpretive acrobatics in order to preserve the image of Fanon as a always consistent thinker, and then on the other hand, also avoid um, making the choice for him and and denouncing the other side as simplistic or or. Unattractive for whatever reason. Instead, saying no, Fanon really wrestled with with these two different ways of conceiving of change, and we as readers might need to do the same.
1: It's it's really clarifying, and you know, and I think as you were speaking, I was I was thinking about, and I think as I was reading the book itself, I was really struck by the extent to which you really, at the level of your own interpretation in your own text attempted to kind of be alongside Fanon as you were saying or sort of be with him and um, and i'm fascinated by what you were just talking about that the extent to which Fanon is sort of constituted by digressions and slips of the tongue and i mean even just personally as someone who comes from both a background in in literature you know in comparative literature and poetry and then now is a clinician, a sort of psychoanalytically oriented clinician. I think this kind of attention to language and unconscious processes and slips of the tongue um, and those kinds of complexities really interests me. And so I I think I was interested in hearing from you just briefly a little bit on kind of your sense of your methodological interventions. And you touched on this a little bit, but um, just wanted to hear maybe how you're thinking about your interpretive tools. I mean, I think about you cite in the book at one point, Fred Moten, um, this beautiful formulation that Fanon's text is still open and still opens. And I think it seems to me that part of the work of your book is sort of Keeping Fanon open in a sense, so maybe you could just talk a little bit about your sense of um, the methodology there. Yeah. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, yeah, so I would I would maybe start with um, uh, drawing upon that that uh, the connection you made, from, you know, your own personal connection, both background and literature, and studying and uh, working um, uh, within a clinic. Um, so this this sort of dual um, combination is also really at the start of Fanon's career as a writer. And that's something you learn from the new material. So he, what, he some of his earliest writings, his very, very earliest writings are these sort of surreal plays, these theatrical plays. Um, so we already know from that work uh, combined with, um, a reading of black and white mass, which makes it also very clear that Fanon is very concerned with the question of language, um, and that for him, uh, language not only expresses a content, but the way in which that content is expressed also holds meaning. Um, so, it, so there's so there's that, but he's. He's writing these these experimental pieces while he's studying to become ultimately a psychiatrist, um, and so he's also thinking about uh, you, you know and, and at this time um, the study of psychiatry. Um, I, 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 maybe you can tell us more about about how it is today, but um, at that time it was really it. it there were no sort of boundaries between studying on the one hand, neurology, and on the other hand, phenomenology. Uh, Studying on the one hand, um, uh, psychoanalysis, and on the other hand, surrealism. You know, these were all considered important elements to take into account when pursuing uh, sort of psychiatric theory and practice. Um, and so I think because of that sort of dual relationship, both in the sense of Fanon's uh, own experimentation with language in his writing, combined with uh, a sensitivity to, to language in a, in, and its importance in a clinical setting, that, um, that in a sense that calls upon the reader to also take into account uh, the complexity of the relationship between an argument and how it's made, and a concept and the specific word, image, or metaphor used to develop that concept. Um, and so that's that's the sort of uh, the sort of reading that I pursue. On some level, it could be described as a kind of um, a kind of symptomatic reading. Um, it is definitely inspired by the kind of. Althusserian tradition of, of symptomatic reading. Um, I mentioned uh, uh book on Althusser as a kind of inspiration for the project. Um, and uh, in a sense, I mean, uh, for, for those who may not be familiar with that, um, that notion of symptomatic reading, it's a kind of reading that observes how something is said along with what is said that considers uh, images, metaphors, silences, slips, discrepant claims, not as problems to be solved, but as forms of communication and expression that carry their own meaning uh, and that demand to be read and interpreted. And so that's that, that's how I would uh, describe my own approach to Phenon. I, I, I take very seriously whenever I see an inconsistent statement or whenever I see a, a metaphor that that conflicts with another metaphor. Um, and I don't necessarily see them as um, as a as a as a strike against um, Fenon's thinking. you know oh well he should have he should have edited disc these competing metaphors out. no I think I think that they say quite a bit about about what we can learn from him.
1: yeah right fantastic and and again, you sort of got into this just now. I mean I think, Again, I'm fascinated by thinking about these kinds of integrated disciplinary strands in Fanon. You were just talking about the kind of the hybridity in some ways of a certain kind of surrealist thinking and poetic thinking um, and psychoanalytic thought and the kind of blurring of these boundaries which again, as somebody working in mental health now, I mean, is by no means the case currently in the field, right? Things are so sort of partitioned off in a way, um, and disciplinary camps are really kind of ghettoized in a way, or sort of um, all kind of partitioned off. And so, I think, yeah, I would I would be interested to in continuing to talk to think about, you know, you dedicate a chapter in the book to, um, as you were just saying, to the psychiatric papers of Fanon. Um, And I would be interested in thinking together a little bit about how you're conceptualizing within your book, Fanon's thinking about change within a psychiatric um, context, and how that connects to other kinds of change, be it political change or historical change. Um, and it seems it seems to me that a lot of the work that you're doing is sort of trying to sort of oscillate between these different conceptions, conceptions of change at, on the one hand, the intra-psychic level, and on the other hand, the political and structural level. So yeah, maybe we could just spend a little bit of time there and thinking about Fanon's psychoanalytic and psychiatric and clinical thinking um, and how that shows up for you in the book, yeah.
0: Sure, great. So maybe it would be helpful just uh, briefly to give kind of uh, the arc of, of Fanon's uh, career as a, as a first as a student uh, in Lyon, uh, studying um, psychiatry, then uh, interning at the Santa Blanc Cl- clinic also in France um, under the direction primarily of uh, Francois Tosquelles, a very interesting um, theorist and and clinician in his own right, who is probably most famous for uh, uh, developing what is known interchangeably. For Fanon, it's more often referred to as social therapy. For uh, Tosquelles, more often referred to as institutional psychotherapy. but in effect, uh, this is a kind of attempt to reform the psychiatric hospital, uh, remove a number of its um, sort of carceral uh, or sometimes it's referred to as concentrationist elements. Um, uh, the uh, internment of a patient, their isolation, their uh, the strict, um, uh disciplining if you like of their movement and the, uh, and instead moving towards the creation of a kind of neo society within that, that that's where the social therapy part the the, uh, the creation of a neo society within the the hospital setting uh, where uh, patients doctors and staff would engage in different um, activities from the um, you know, movie viewings, uh, the staging of plays, um, uh, sporting events, celebrations of different holidays, and I think for me, most interestingly, the, the collective production of a of a kind of newspaper or journal where the staff, patients, and doctors would all publish material together. Um, in in that in that um, form in that in that sort of organ, if you like, of the of the hospital. Um, and so that that's something that Fanon had an opportunity to to learn from, to participate in while working at the Santa Blanc uh, A Clinic. Um, and then after passing his exam, so that he himself could be a, a, a sort of head doctor of a of a of a psychiatric ward. Um, took a job in Algeria and attempted to uh, experiment with social therapy and the techniques of that form of treatment in Algeria. Uh, In that way really challenge existing uh, uh, standard practices of of, um, psychiatric treatment as performed in a colonial setting. Um, And he writes very interestingly about the difficulties of that sort of translation of social therapy from from Europe to from Western Europe to Northern Africa. Um, so much, and it, this this experimentation happens to coincide with the Algerian War uh, and the sort of total uh, this condition. He ultimately resigns because he feels that the total dehumanization. Of, of, of the situation is not at all conducive to the kind of work that he's, he's participating in. So he resigns, he's immediately uh, exiled, eventually takes up, after traveling around a little bit, eventually takes up a position in, in Tunisia. And, and now he experiments with another, um, ultimately a, a form of treatment that he learns about um, that has some success in Canada and Denmark and England called day hospitalization. and He really thinks that this is a revolution in, in psychiatric treatment. And the idea is not that dissimilar from, in terms of the techniques performed during the day from say institutional psychotherapy, but with one major difference, which is that the expectation is that patients are to have the, maintain the freedom to leave at the end of the day. And in that way, maintain a more organic relationship with the world around them, which from this view of treatment uh, allows for a better assessment of what's really at the bottom of bringing the patient to seek, to, to seek or to need treatment in the first place. Uh, that relationship between individual and society uh, that, that oftentimes gets broken, disarticulated uh, whenever a patient is interned, isolated in a hospital setting. Um, So that's sort of the arc, right? Um, What we find is that Fanon as a clinician, as a practicing psychiatrist, is very concerned with change, obviously, with with helping patients uh, reach another, uh, a new form of existence. Um, And in that way, the dividedness uh, that we see in Fanon's thinking, say, about how to transform colonial society. Well, we also see that in how to address uh, an individual's um, specific ailments, disorders, uh, illnesses, et cetera. Um, is the new personality that emerges from treatment, is that uh, a qualitatively new form of the personality that existed before Or is it a totally new personality, one in some way broken from the previous form? Uh, And similarly, the techniques, do the techniques uh, of therapeutic practice, do they contribute to uh, negating but also preserving, dissolving but also reconstituting the memories, traumas, Um, experiences of the past or do these techniques destroy, dissolve those traumas, experiences to make way for something brand new? So he he struggles with that, but he also struggles with uh, uh, another set of questions that have to do, not so much with how he theorizes and practices psychiatry, but how he conceptualizes his own interventions in the history of psychiatry. So here, the question is, when Fanon engages in social therapy in Algeria, is he, in a sense, building off of the legacy of the Algiers School of Psychiatry, which relies on a um, uh, an, an approach to psychiatry that attempts to link mental disorders with a kind of inherent, as, as inherent features of, of racialized groups. Can we say that what Fanon's doing in Algeria is a kind of dialectical transformation of that work, a kind of um, uh, 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 a negation of it, but that some maintains some elements of it in the same way that maybe uh, a revolution would maintain certain enlightenment ideals even as it fights for decolonization? Or is it some sort of more fundamental break that would seek to annihilate the very values at the core of of that kind of psychiatric thinking and and practice? The same is true for de-hospitalization. Is de-hospitalization a kind of transformation, a dialectical transformation of institutional psychotherapy? Or does it say to itself, any form of internment is a kind of, uh, is antithetical to psychiatric treatment unless it's absolutely necessary. And in that way, dehospitalization is not the sort of uh, a qualitatively new form of institutional psychotherapy, but rather a a, a clean break with the practice of internment, uh, no matter the form, no matter it's more extreme forms through straitjackets, isolation, punitive treatment, but also more reformed versions, um, freedom of movement but confined within the hospital walls. That's sort of these are the types of of questions that 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 really um, trouble Fanon and 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 that he that he wants to. To think about, so at those two levels, I, I see the the dividedness of phenomenological thinking up here.
1: Yeah, fascinating. I mean, again, sort of fascinating. I think for me, both at sort of an intellectual level and then also just personally as someone. I mean, I'll just disclose that right now, I'm I'm a graduate student and and clinical intern at a freestanding psychiatric hospital, um, particularly in a partial hospitalization program, which in a way is a sort of day. Day hospitalization program. But in any case, again, as you were speaking, I think I was just struck by, um, the multiple levels of inference that you're working at, you know, where, um, you know, looking at the sort of interpsychic and intrapsychic level and a kind of psychoanalytic thinking, infinon, um, You know, that I think, again, sort of a traditional psychoanalytic conception of the mind is kind of archaeological in a way where there's sort of a kind of uncovering of things from the past. But as you're saying, it seems like Fanon is also sort of moving towards kind of what does it mean to sort of clear away that which was or sort of break apart from that which was. Um, And then as you were saying, that also shows up in his relationship to intellectual traditions and politics. Um, And so, in relation to this question of of change and the nature of change and um, what it means to sort of radically break away from things as they are, you know, you spend two chapters of the book on Wretched of the Earth, um, the the final two chapters. And I think I was hoping to spend just a little bit of time, again, I mean, it's an enormous set of questions, um, but maybe on, on the way that you approach Fanon's thinking about violence. And yeah, just maybe if you could just sort of talk a little bit about the kind of how Fanon's dialectical and, and, and non-dialectical thinking shows up in his writing about revolutionary violence. Um,
0: yeah, great. So I should say I was thinking as you were um, posing those questions, it's true that in, in, the, in the psychiatric writings, which I would I was just discussing his uh, politics are there, but it's far more implicit. And we see in the works for which Fanon is more uh, well known, uh, a more implicit direct engagement with politics. And and I really, um, uh, in the book, I try to emphasize that that's true throughout, that this sort of periodization between, um, on the one hand, uh, uh, an early, psychoanalytically informed Fanon and then a later politically informed Fanon, that that kind of periodization is very misleading and that from beginning to end, these two really uh, um, emerge as uh, complementary wings of his thinking. Um, You see that in Black, and White, Masks, and you see that in The Wretched of the Earth. So in The Wretched of the Earth, um, uh, particularly when it comes to the question of of uh of violence um in the first chapter um the english translation frames says that violence can can be a cleansing it uses that word cleansing force and that's risky because it immediately evokes an association with maybe ethnic cleansing or or something like that whereas if we go back to the french we see that a more appropriate translation would probably be detoxifying, which carries quite a different uh, connotation to it than, than uh, all the associations that emerge when you, when you hear the word cleansing in relationship to violence. So I, th- I think that's important to note first um, that for Fanon, there's a kind of violence um, can be a detoxifying force. Um, And it's also important to note that uh, in that first essay for Fanon, you can only really understand the violence of decolonization within the context of colonial society as an inherently day-to-day deeply violent society. And the question isn't so much you know, in the abstract, is he for or against revolutionary violence, but rather what options are available to those living under colonialism to get out of colonialism? And he makes the case that colonialism is not something open to reason and debate, that on some level it is itself naked violence and only responds to greater violence. So the question is, uh, is then decolonizing violence a kind of uh, appropriation of that same colonial violence but turned back against colonialism? That would be um, a kind of dialectical way of thinking about uh, uh, decolonizing violence, that that it's an element that already exists in society but that it can be in a sense transformed and made anew and serve a different purpose than the one that it's currently serving. Um, the difficulty with that is, is that Fanon recognizes that participating in that kind of violence can also create new traumas. And so here's where we start getting to the interconnection between the political and the, and, the, and the psychiatric or the political and the clinical maybe we could say. that. Um, violence promises uh, decolonizing violence promises a new society, but it seems to be the case that those who participate in it, even as the, it might be detoxifying, may also create new traumas, new things that need to be worked through. And in that way, it's as much a poison as it is a remedy. Um, and, and this really, this kind of thinking then uh, really challenges and makes complicated this other uh, subterranean strand of thinking because there's also an element in in The Wretched of the Earth where Fanon insists that decolonizing violence will be a kind of tabula rasa. That's, that's where he says decolonization as itself is a kind of tabula rasa, clearing of the slate. And so you wonder, uh, even as you might want to hold out for that kind of a uh, totally new form of 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 society, where nothing from nothing from from the legacy of colonialism would be preserved, so we could finally be free from it. Um, Fanon struggles with the question of, but if to get there, uh, a certain type of trauma is experienced through decolonizing violence, then have we really? have we really cleared the slate or is colonialism still there uh, after uh, the revolution, the liberation struggle? And if so, what work is to be done? And here I think is where Fanon really leans on the continued importance of a decolonized form of psychiatry that uh, that you know, it's not a surprise as a revolutionary that Fanon would say therapy isn't enough. You have to transform society. But what's interesting about Fanon is Fanon also says, revolution's not enough. You have to pursue therapy. And that, that, that part there is, is, uh, is, is one of the things that he ultimately, you know, towards the later chapters of The Wretched Earth, I think he, I think he leans on the idea that um, to, truly, to truly, to move towards true decolonization it's going to have to involve uh, therapeutic work and uh, revolutionary work. The transformation of social conditions and the transformation of the psyche, both in terms of what how the psyche is formed under colonialism, but also, uh, and, and maybe most interestingly, um, because perhaps uh, less intuitively, how the psyche is transformed and even, armed during the liberation process so that's what i would say there is where we see this sort of tension division between these different ways of thinking about change and how they how they appear in in uh um conceptualization of the relationship between the political and the clinical
1: fascinating and very clarifying you know it it is i I mean it makes me think about the fact it seems um you know it's telling in a sense that wretched of the earth which we think of as um, you know one of Fanon's most politicized texts that it ends with case studies in a way that sort of the text itself ends with case studies, um, but you know I think we're going to wrap up now. But I do just want to end I think just by situating ourselves in the in the present tense a little bit. You know this this episode likely will will not come out for a few weeks, but um, for folks listening, you know I think. We're, um, we're we're speaking right at this moment where just, I think, days ago that Derek Chauvin um, was charged with, with murder in Minneapolis um, for the murder of George Floyd. And I think as you gestured towards earlier, and as you indicate at multiple times in the book, you know, um, in a lot of ways, the book itself really came about through a proximity to Social movements and social change, and um, activism, and um, and so I think I just wanted to give a little bit of space at the end of this interview again to sort of bring ourselves into the present tense and maybe just um, ask a little bit about sort of how you're thinking about Fanon's continued relevance um, to us now and how how potentially we can make productive use of Fanon um, to make sense of of our current moment. Yeah.
0: Yeah, thank you for that, that question. I think it's a really important one and difficult one. Um, I guess the way I would start maybe is by saying that um, if Fanon uh, invites the reader to uh, inhabit the same tension conflict division that, that that marks his thinking in terms of the nature of change then that means that um, I don't think that what Fanon uh, provides us today is sort of ready-made answers but rather um, urgently asks us uh, demands upon us to Ask and pose certain questions, um, especially what needs to be done so that the world that we're living in now—it so desperately needs change It can be can be truly transformed. Um, and I think the the recent, uh, you know, uh, the trial and and the verdict is an interesting um, moment because. If you if you watched um, you know how 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 it was covered the the response um, you, you of course saw some celebration you saw relief and maybe many people watching also felt both of those sensations as they were watching other people respond to the verdict but I think um, If you look closely, and I saw this particularly on some of the, uh, some of the streams that weren't connected to sort of um, major news outlets, you also saw a kind of ambivalent feeling. Like that, a kind of almost uh, anticipation about how this might be used as a way of saying okay well now now. um, uh, Justice has been served but. We can't, we can't uh, get back George Floyd's life. Uh, there's really no justice for him, and um, and of course we know that uh, the policeman who was charged with murder, or the ex-policeman now who's charged with murder, uh, is not a is not a single case, and so I think. What I, what I found most telling was the, the sort of general sense of ambivalence and uncertainty that maybe maybe actually now the really hard questions can be asked. Now that, the, now that this trial's out of the way uh, about what the future looks like. Um, because this obviously isn't going to be enough. And we know that because while the trial was happening, uh, a number of different people, Died at the hands of the police, and so I don't think Fanon gives us an answer, but he asks, he 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 really urges us to say, what is necessary, what will be necessary, to truly transform society. What kind of what kind of change do we need, or what kind of combination of different forms of change do we need? Um, and I think I don't think that he would put a whole lot of uh, emphasis on on the verdict by itself but that he might see it as the beginning of of asking deeper questions about not just this individual case but but how to how to really transform society so that we we um so that cases like this uh don't don't occur in the future
1: thanks gavin you know i think that is as good a place as any to to both end and begin in a sense but um thank you so much for your time and sort of your generosity with your time and it, it really has been a total pleasure to talk with you today so thank you for being on the program and likewise thank you so much